Luke chapter 18. Again, this is week eight, our final week uh, in our series through the parables. You can see in your bulletin there, we're going to be hitting the book of Jonah in August. While you're getting there, I want to tell a little bit about my story, give you some context of where we're going this morning. Um, One of the things that we all have in common here is that we all have a story. We all have storylines that God is working in and through. Um, You could say that we are who we are due in part, right, to the the people and the places and the events that have had an influence in shaping our hearts and forming our minds. That would include everybody that's sitting here today. But then this thing happens where God shows his face and he makes an appearance maybe in some different chapters of our stories and this is what can happen when that happens is that he can either become the main character in our stories or he can disappear altogether. Now for those of us who have a story where God became the main character at one point, uh, a pattern emerges then that sees us just just ingrained in a battle for the lead role. Because as people, as humans, as sinners who have a story that God has invaded, this is a story that we have been playing the lead role in for quite a long time. And not only played the lead role in, but actually loved playing that lead role. And what that causes then in our lives and in our stories is attention. And there's a constant tension at work. So as we've been going through the parables, Jesus has been speaking to this tension that exists in our life as people that at one point ruled over their own lives, and then Jesus invades our lives, and now he is the ruler over our lives. And some of you feel the force of this tension today. You feel the force of this tension right now. Now you're in a season where it's bearing down on you. You're feeling the weight of that tension. Maybe you're somebody who's questioning things. Maybe you're somebody who's a little bit younger and you've been just riding the coattails of your parents' faith for years. And you're like, that's not good enough. Because I have friends, I have professors, I have teachers, and they're saying something different. So you're questioning things. Maybe there's elements in your life that have been up to this point like this smooth, glassy pool of water until somebody came and what feels like dropped a stone right into it and now the water has been troubled. The waters of your life have been troubled. There's ripples now. There's a reflection of yourself that you thought you could see clearly, but it's not like that anymore. It feels like it's wavering. It feels like it's distorted. It feels like it's out of focus. So let me just encourage you before we dive into this text by saying that God's intention is not always for the pools of your life to be glassy and smooth. And that if you're struggling and you're wrestling and you're uncertain, it means that maybe for the first time, God is using this church using these people and using his word to reveal things to you that you maybe never considered before so that you might start considering him like you never have before. But there's kind of a rub and there's a tension in that. Sometimes in that wrestling, we we stomp our feet and we dig our heels in. Why? Well, because we don't like unfamiliarity. Because we don't like things out of our control. We don't like having our perspectives challenged. But what we see in Scripture is that because God is loving, what he's doing is taking an ice pick, so to speak, 
to that hard, icy soil in our hearts in an effort to create soil where something new can grow. But that tilling process that he's doing in your heart right now, like, dude, that hurts. That hurts. And it hurts a lot. Because what God is doing is he's exchanging our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Now, this gives you a little bit of picture of my backstory. I was young when Jesus saved me. Before I could blink, what had happened was that Christianity and the church had just become this major, overwhelming, all-consuming part of my life. It was this new world that I was sort of thrust into. It felt safe. It felt secure. And the reason why it did was because it was secluded from what people back then, they don't use this lingo as much anymore, but it was secluded from what people called the secular world or secularism or so it was thought. But looking back now, what I really have begun to understand what I see was that it was like the church was trying to get Christian branding irons out and burn them into my rear end and into the rear end of everything that they could make their own. All right? So what that means is it was like when my mom would get the magic marker out and write my name on everything, right? She'd write my name on my pants, my shirts, my backpacks, my underwear. I think I said this a few weeks ago. Who's going to steal my underwear, moms? I mean, like, who's after that, right? But that's what she did because she wanted to make sure that everybody knew what was mine and ultimately what was hers. So in my experience, the church did kind of the same thing. They tried to put this magic marker on things to separate their stuff from everybody else's stuff. So we, we put our Christian brand on everything. We put it on music, on camps, on schools, on t-shirts, on coffee mugs, books, bookstores, magazines, breath mints, video games, hotels, restaurants, events, theme parks. Shoot, I just realized we have t-shirts after I said that. The big idea behind it all was that by doing this, we could remove ourselves from the ever-widening influence of the world so that the world wouldn't have any negative or godless influence on us whatsoever. So that's why we created Christian alternatives to everything. Now, nobody would say it like this, but what we were either consciously or subconsciously doing was we were segregating ourselves. We were segregating ourselves. The Bible teaches clearly that while we are not to be of the world, like brothers and sisters, we are in it. But we, the church, the churches I was a part of, wanted to take ourselves out of it. So in the process of all of that, growing up through elementary, through middle school, through my high school years, I fell victim to this sort of religious segregation. And like a lot of Christians, my focus shifted it shifted from this free and liberating grace of the gospel, which is what initially changed me and saved me, and it turned into this very legalistic, this very self-righteous, this very self-focused gospel. And two things happened in the process that unfolded in my heart, and it was this. Number one, I became extremely arrogant, incredibly arrogant. Number two, simultaneously, because I was arrogant, I also became fearful of everything. I also became fearful of those outside influences and what was going to happen to my faith if they creeped in. Some of that's not, not bad, not a bad fear to have. So, but how that affected me was that 
If I ever came time to share the gospel, if it ever came time to serve my church or care for my community, that's the kind of heart development that I was operating from. So what happened to me internally was kind of, it was, it was the equivalent of, of selling somebody like a, like a new car without an engine, okay? So you're standing back and you're like, no, 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 really, it's a great car, just look at it. Well, yeah, but it, but it doesn't look like it goes anywhere, you might say. Yeah, but look how fast it looks. And it's like, yeah, but you have to push it like a Flintstone, you know? It has nothing to receive fuel, burn the fuel, and to propel it. So this was a picture of my Christian life, of my Christianity, which resembled Christianity only in the way that a car with no engine still looks like a car, right? I had become... For all intents and purposes, what I had become was a Pharisee, which is one of the religious groups that Jesus, when he was preaching the parables, was preaching them to. And what we know about Pharisees is that they were this group of religious leaders in the New Testament that had started actually with good intentions. The name Pharisee actually means set apart. And their aim was to bring their people back to obeying the laws of God during a time that Israel was under the rule of the Romans. But what happened was this. They began to think that keeping the Jewish laws is what made them righteous before God. What happened was that they were trusting in the work of their hands to save them instead of the work that needed to happen in their hearts. They'd become a poisonous group of people to the people around them that they were leading. And Jesus had a lot of harsh things to say about them in the process, which is why he told many parables, which we've looked at over the last couple of months, warning us to not become like them. Now, after the longest introduction in the world, let's dive into the text right now. Chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." And this is God's Word. Now, if we go back to verse 1 in chapter 18, Jesus was telling another parable about an unrighteous judge. And it was about a, this judge who didn't fear God or have any respect for people. And what happens is a woman comes to this judge seeking justice. And the story goes that because of her persistency, the judge finally gives into her request simply that she would stop bothering him. And so Jesus, with this previous parable, he was encouraging his listeners to pray And to not lose heart because, and here's his big point, if an unrighteous judge listened to the persistent pleas of this widow, how much more would God, the righteous and loving judge, listen to and give justice to those who persistently came to him? 
So now it says that Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, it was all too easy to hear the parable of the unrighteous judge and not put yourself in his place. So Jesus tells another parable. And it's essentially to not believe that unrighteousness is really self-righteousness leads to treating others unjustly. So Jesus now speaks to the self-righteousness that some of his listeners would have had by contrasting two classes of Jewish society here, Pharisees and tax collectors. And that's what we see when we get into verse 10. The story is that these two men go into the Jewish temple to pray. And there's an irony here at work in that Jesus contrasts a church person versus a, church per, versus a person simply going to church. So there's the two contrasts he makes there, a church person versus a person simply going to church. The Pharisee, this brother stands alone. He's off in the distance, standing alone. He has the posture we see of someone who regularly goes into the temple. This was a regular practice for him. He was a churchgoer. But then immediately... As he gets into the temple, what does he do? Well, he distances himself from others. He removes himself from, from those he feels shouldn't occupy the same spiritual place he is in or the same plane that he's on as he walks through the glass doors, walks through the double doors, and stands here with all of our plush plastic chairs. That's what's going on right now with the Pharisee. Now, Pharisees are the people who should actually scare us. And that's what Jesus says over and over as he commits these parables to us. They were the people who showed up to church on time. They were the people who served in multiple ministries. They were the people who tithe like clockwork. I'm not that bummed out of them. I mean, I'll be honest with you, right? They were the people who raised their hands during worship. They were the people who prayed in community group. They were those people. They were the people who never missed a Sunday, even on vacation. Even on vacation. From the outside... These are people who looked like they were serving God with everything they have. I think I've told this story, but here goes it. Uh, my brother, he, my older brother used to be a ski instructor up at Mammoth Lakes in California. And um, whenever he would come back down to visit us after the season was over, he would always say, I just, it shocks me that you have these, you call them lodgers. And I said, what does that mean? You know, he said, he said, it's just these guys and they, they have all this money and they, every time I see them, every new season, they come in, they have all these brand new skis and they have all this like, you know, top, top flight like equipment and all this gear. He goes, and they just sit in the lodge all day. They never, they never actually get out on the slopes. He goes, and it cracks me up because I, I see them and they're there all day and I see them day after day and it's like they never ski. They just hang out. They look like great skiers. The problem is they don't ski, right? And that's what, he always, that's what always, he always kind of remarked about. But then it says here that the Pharisee, what he does then as somebody who's in the temple doing the things that somebody like him is supposed to do in the temple, right? It says that he then goes through this self-congratulatory spiritual checklist. And he lists off a group of people that he thanks God that he's nothing like, right? Because, I mean, I've never done that at all. I've never looked at anyone and said, Man, I'm glad I'm not in his shoes, right? I mean, if anything, it should, we should start warming up to the story a little bit as much as it hurts a little bit at this point, right? And because we see this brother's list that it's, it's centered around people who practice injustice, who cheat, who are unfaithful. And what he's doing here is he's making the case to God that unlike those people, he is just. 
He is fair and he is faithful. And then he finishes his prayer by cluing God in on a couple of key reasons why he is righteous, namely because he fasts twice a week, he tithes everything he has, which, by the way, we should assume that all of that was, was true. He was actually, most likely, probably doing all those things. So the Pharisee prays here an informative prayer to God. He tells God who he is. He tells God what he's done. It's like he hands God his resume and reminds God that he has hired the right man to be his representative. That's what he's doing with God. He acts like he's his own judge, justifying himself by his own actions and good deeds while looking across the temple at the tax collector with disgust and disdain. And that's what happens when we get to verse 13. Jesus contrasts this brother with the tax collector. And again, if you know anything about a tax collector, these would be horrible, despised, miserable, crooked, unjust, unworthy, Benedict Arnold types, right, in that particular culture. If you were Jewish, the thought of a tax collector would sicken you, right? These were traitors of the Jewish faith who worked for the Roman government. They charged the people additional taxes that they then kept for themselves because they, they skimmed a little off the top, right? So they'd say, here's the taxes that you owe Caesar, but I'm going to charge you a little bit more because I'm going to take that for myself. And the people knew that they did it. And there was nothing they could do about it. There was no honor. There was no integrity. There was no truthfulness. These were people who had denied both their religion and their people for cash, right? So this tax collector, like the Pharisee, he comes into the temple, but Jesus says he's standing far off. His posture is the opposite of the Pharisee. He doesn't feel worthy of offering prayers where the Pharisee is, who stands alone in a privileged place in the temple, thinking himself worthy to be giving his moral superiority to God. This is a guy who doesn't fast twice a week. He feasts twice a week. And not only that, but does it from the tax money that he collects from the Jewish people. So this guy's not tithing. He's collecting his own tithes. And he's spending that money on himself. But something changes inside of the tax collector. Something internal happens. There's a shift. Because now he's not robbing people in the temple, but he's repenting to God in the temple. I mean, this is a brother who has become ruined. This is a brother who is not like what he used to be. Well, the Pharisee looks on him with contempt, the tax collector has so much contempt for his sin that he's ashamed to even lift his eyes to heaven as he prays. And the realization, it causes him to physically beat his chest, which back then would have been a sign of remorse. And he agonizes over the predicament that he's in, that he's a sinner in need of mercy and forgiveness. So Jesus does something that would have driven a stake through the religious community at that time. He reduces self-righteousness here into actual contempt toward people and toward God, which is what we see in the Pharisee. He takes what all of us would try to tell ourselves we're not guilty of by illustrating it's exactly who all of us are at our core. The Pharisee had an inaccurate view of God, didn't he? 
He had an inaccurate view of who God was because why? His eyes were fixated somewhere else. He may have been praying to God, but his eyes were not fixated on God. His eyes were fixed on himself. Contrasted with the tax collector who had an accurate view of who God was because his eyes were actually fixated on God. Listen, the mark of a true Christian is a sinner who is sorry for their sin and saved by God's grace. Don't let the simplicity of that comment just kind of wash over you. The mark of a repentant sinner is one who desires the good they don't deserve, and they know they don't deserve it. And in that low, gut-wrenching surety of a repentant sinner's sin comes this even wider, greater, brighter, more beautiful assurance in a Savior who justifies them through His righteousness alone. And then we see in verse 14, Jesus just laying out the heart of the gospel. He says this, He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So this brother's remorse led to his repentance, which led to Christ's righteousness being laid on his account. He didn't just go home that day. He didn't just leave the temple. He didn't just get in his car after another Sunday morning at church. He went home as one who had hope. He returned as one who could rejoice. God doesn't tell us how the Pharisee went home. He tells us how the tax collector went home. And then Jesus finishes the parable by issuing a warning at the end of verse 14. When he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So these are sobering passages for us who live lives that display actions that on one hand would make us think that, no, 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 we, we have humbled ourselves before God. I am somebody who lives out the posture of a humble, saved Christian. We could easily, every morning when we wake up and look at ourselves in the mirror, be convinced that that is the life we're living if we don't probe into it a little bit deeper. If we don't break through some of our own Christian brandings and see what the truth is of what really is being in, uh, exhibited and extended from the depths of our hearts. Because what we're seeing here is we're seeing a false humility versus an actual humility. A false humility versus a faithful humility. And you know what? Nobody thought the first guy had a false humility. If anybody walked into the temple, nobody looked at the Pharisee and thought that he wasn't the real guy, right? But here's what we know about false humility versus true humility. Number one, false humility acknowledges wrongdoing of others. True humility acknowledges wrongdoing of ourselves. Two, false humility denies mercy or the need for it. True humility desires mercy and understands our desperateness 
for it. Three, false humility shows our contempt for God and for others. Whereas true humility shows our contempt for our sins before God and others. The Pharisee thought he was moral, but only saw how unlike he was to sinners. But the tax collector knew he was immoral, but saw how unlike he was to God because he was a sinner. Now listen, all of us struggle with thinking that we are not as bad as somebody else. When I was growing up and I had that Christian branding stamped on everything, what it made me feel like was like this Pharisee. Was that I'm doing the things that please God. Therefore, I'm not as bad as the one who comes and humbles himself before God, admitting that he's not doing the things that please God. All of you struggle with thinking that you're not as bad as someone else. Our minds are kind of like Google in a lot of ways, right? We type in the word unrighteous and we come up with links that don't have our name anywhere listed in them, right? None of us are going to find our names under the Wikipedia link for sinners. None of us. And if we do, we're just going to delete. C.S. Lewis made this comment in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, I've been trying to make the reader believe that we actually are, at present, creatures whose character must be, in some respects, a horror to God as it is. And then he goes on to say this, when we really see it, we are a horror to ourselves. And this I believe to be a fact. And I notice this, he says, that the holier a man is, the more fully he is aware of that fact. Interesting. Because it ties exactly into what Jesus is contrasting here between the religious Pharisee and the sinning tax collector. What Jesus tells us in this parable is that conceit creates contempt toward community. That's what it does. What does it really mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It means that your attitude and actions toward them reflect the humble view you have of yourself. This is the spirit of Jesus. This is the spirit that his church is meant to embody. Philippians 2.8 says, and being found in human form, what did Jesus do? Well, it says it right here. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, to the point of the greatest sacrifice that can be made. And it says even death on a cross. So there's irony here for us. There's irony here. And the irony is that the one most like Jesus in this parable was the sinner who humbled himself like Jesus. Not the religious man, the repentant man. And nobody would have thought that if they would have peered in. And this is just confounding to us. This should just confound us. This man who had broken all of the Jewish laws, listen, was the most obedient of the two before God because humility before God is obedience. Do you guys hear me in that? Remember the story of Samuel and King Saul? 
And King Saul was given specific instructions when he was to go to war with this particular nation and leave nothing unturned and take none of the spoil back for himself. Saul said, you know, I, there's a lot of good stuff here. And after I claim victory, I want to take some of this stuff and maybe I'll sacrifice some of it to God. So Samuel, the prophet, confronts him and says, dude, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying his voice? He said, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So we understand that righteousness before God is different than how the world and a lot of parts of the church define righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew 9, verse 13, he said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So therefore, when we think of somebody who is righteous, we see here a clear picture of what that looks like before God, which is not boasting of our deeds or our works, but it's coming before the Lord in humility. Here's our question. In what ways does our life say, thank you, God, that I'm not like these sinners? Instead of, thank you, God, for saving me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If we read this and don't think of ourselves like the Pharisee, let me repeat that. If we read this, we don't see ourselves in the category of the Pharisee, it's proof that we are like the Pharisee. To be like this humble man means we have to first see ourselves as proud men before the Lord. Because it was for men and women like this that Jesus died. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God became sin for sinners. Christ is righteousness for the self-righteous. Paul tells us in Galatians 2, a church was battling with this very issue, said, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he said, I do not nullify the grace of God. I don't wipe it out. For if righteousness were through the law, and he makes this amazing comment, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ died for no purpose. Here's what we know. You can enter a church without Christ ever entering your heart. You can be with Christ's church without ever becoming part of Christ. It's not that you came here, okay? It's not that you came here, it's how you will leave here because you came here. Do you see what Jesus was trying to point out about the man going home justified? It wasn't that he went to the temple. 
The Pharisee was basing everything on the fact that he was in the temple. And he was bringing his works and his righteousness before the Lord. It wasn't that this other man was in the temple. It was that he left the temple having become what God had called him to be. We will face the Lord as a boastful Pharisee or as a broken tax collector. And for the humble in heart, we will go home with the Lord justified and exalted because the church is only the church. Listen. Because it is a community of broken sinners who now have a Savior. That's it. And there's hope in that. There's great hope in that. If we as a collective body of Christ remember that it's not what we do, it's not what we bring to God, but it's that God sent Jesus and brought life to us so that we might have joy in his name, that we might rest in his promises, that we might not be like that self-exalting, tired, exhausted shell of a man, Pharisee, who is bringing these pitiful works and deeds before the Lord instead of the obedience that the Lord requires from us, which is repentance and humility for the sake of happiness and joy and life eternal with him. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for these parables. We thank you for these truths from the mouth of Jesus during his ministry. Lord, we thank you that the very things that he was communicating 2,000 years ago are so incredibly relevant and timely for us today. None of these words go out of date for us. So God, we thank you for the timeliness of this. For those of us who are struggling, for those of us who are in a season of life where we might wonder where you are, we find ourselves in a season of life where we're being humbled and we feel alone as we walk through things that we never thought we would have to face. But we understand that you don't always allow us to be swimming in smooth waters in this life. But you allow ripples to happen. You allow waves to overwhelm us so that we might be like that tax collector in the temple and say, have mercy on me, a sinner, Lord, so that we can feel your presence, so that we can know that you don't leave, you don't forsake those who you call your own. So God, let us gain much hope in this passage as a church who desires to humble itself before you, but many times doesn't know how. We carry a lot of baggage with us from the past. I carry baggage with me from my own story. I'm grasping to understand grace and mercy. 
And so, Lord, as you sanctify each and every one of our storylines, Lord, let us walk with one another in obedience, in humility, as we encourage each other to endure and to persevere and to continue to take everything we have and everything we are and lay it at the foot of the cross. Lord, may that be said of us as a church in this community, Lord. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.